Well met, dreamer, and welcome to Nocturne, the umbral planet of twilight tales and slumberant songs. Being a universe is a lonely endeavor. Opportunities to meet and share ideas are few and far between, especially when such contact is often more calamitous than it is collaborative. It is the plight of a universe to manage their own solitude and, left alone with themselves, a universe must either find ways to express oneself or repress their problems as small as they will go. When they go down the latter route, a universe that compresses itself over many eons will eventually find that it can go no smaller. Then, when they try to anyways, it results in the biggest of bangs. Everything that was once trapped comes out again, often at very high speeds, and accompanied by a celebratory light show. This is quite unpleasant for everyone involved, but it will happen again and again in the life of a universe. Once a universe has gone through this cycle many times, the more discerning amongst them will begin to question this approach. They will resolve that next time they will find a safe and constructive way to let it all out, only to find themselves fully compressed nary some quintillion years later, with their time fully dilated and the antimatter that they forgot to tidy away mattering a great deal. This is one of the major patterns in the life of a universe. While they are focused on this, they will naturally overlook their other less pressing patterns in their behavior. Repetitious ideas like gravity and thermodynamics pull them in time and time again, ensuring that a universe will most always make more of the same. Perhaps with a phase of sliding a few new rings around an old planet design, or pouring new clouds into a gas giant in the cosmic equivalent of Latte Fomart. However, one universe tried something unique when it created Nocturne, planet of eternal night. Nocturne's universe endowed it with a menagerie of mystical waltzing moons, a lack of rotation, and a giant red sun, which, altogether, left one hemisphere in eternal moon-nurtured darkness, and the other 
in a permanent, scorchingly hot day. That universe then immediately regretted this choice and moved on to more traditional projects that its parents might approve of. Falling into old patterns is not just the purview of a universe. That which is created by the patternistic rarely escapes such behavior themselves. This is abundantly prevalent when observing one of Nocturne's oldest guilds, that of the historians. Thumbing through the archives of the historians, one may be able to locate the illustrative words of Horatio Vicard, head of contextualization theory at the Historian's School of Quillery and Questioning some 200-odd years ago. One is able to find these words because they were said in a class of soon-to-be historians, people who, in due time, would become the collectors of all the stories that were thought worth collecting on Nocturne. And, in the mind of one student, this was worthy. The file reads, One morning, in front of a class of roughly 20 final-year students, one Horatio Vicard orated the following question. Class, who amongst you can articulate what nepotism is? No hands rose, for they dared not to answer him incorrectly. After a short silence, he continued, Correct, nepotism is silent. Contrary to most things, it exists because we dare not acknowledge it. He paused for effect, but was interrupted by a student trepidatiously raising their hand. With a half-scowl, Horatio pointed to the student, who stood, then asked, Pardon the interruption, but will this be on the test, father? No one outside of the historians had ever read this text, apart from you and I just now. And within the historians, there were only two. The one who wrote it, and the one who filed it by date in the grand archives. That second historian then logged the file number against the name of the main participants, the location of the event, and a few of the key words in the historians' overextensive and ceaselessly growing glossary so people may locate the file if it should ever become of interest. It never did, but the fear of irrelevance never stopped a historian from storing anything that could be of even minor importance to even a single Nocturnian. If one delved deeply enough, they could find first-hand accounts from early historians describing the construction of the Midnight City after the twin asteroids came and went, nestled right by bygone recipes for primitive mold pies or accounting ledgers donated by retired business owners. These activities began as a communal service to the people of the Midnight City. In the early days, People offered their labor freely and willingly to help construct a place for all those who needed a home. Not everyone could build, though, and even if they could, they were limited by available tools and materials. So people found other ways to help the burgeoning community. Many of those learned in the written word did what they felt they could best contribute to the world. To search for history, to study it, 
and to provide access to these lessons from the past. Their numbers grew, as did the number of papers, codexes, and scrolls stored in their vaults. However, time and the extremity of their archives brought with them an existential issue for the historians. They were running out of history to archive. There were always new pieces of the past to discover, but uncovering them became increasingly time-consuming and often what was found provided little additional information or context compared to what they already had. Internally, the historians pondered whether they should downsize and join other guilds if they weren't really doing that much to help anymore. Many of them did leave, but those who stayed had the unenviable task of repurposing the skills of the historians as best they could. The historians never completely resolved this issue. They made new groups dedicated to creating records of their own rather than just finding old sources. New groups dedicated to the management and organization of history. And new groups who taught generations of historians the skills of their guild. They became bigger and bigger with a larger remit and infrastructure to support it. But the same old problem persisted. They understood with crystalline clarity that their functions had less and less to do with history and more and more to do with the here and now. Externally, people still considered them the purveyors of history, but internally, it was hard to find a consensus on what the historians were really all about. This fact was not lost on Grant Stanley but he was rather too busy to do much about it. Especially now, for right in this instance, Grant was sweaty, nervous, and standing in a long room predominantly inhabited by a large stone meeting table and the intimidating presence of those with unknowable expectations. Overhead hung a series of long and slim song lamps that emitted a harsh white light. This light reflected off the white walls and occasionally off the large glass dividers that separated the meeting room from a floor full of toiling historians. At the head of the table sat a large nocturnian. He beckoned to Grant with a feigned friendliness. Delighted you can join us today, Mr. Stanley. We're all fascinated to hear about your team's progress developing new futures for the historians. Upon hearing this, Grant began to sweat a little hotter. So, show us what you have been working on. With that, the entirety of the room turned away from the large nocturnian and stared expectantly at Grant. The combination of expectations and mass attention was akin to being boiled alive for Grant. He'd had this meeting in his calendar for months now, but only read that he actually needed to do something for it that morning. This amount of pressure wasn't exactly what he signed up for when he took over his father's old position, but he couldn't just leave the guild after climbing so high. So Grant did what many do when they're caught in places 
they couldn't ever imagine leaving. Persevere, verbosely. Grant began in the most intangible, metaphorical darkness. Down there, one must fumble around to feel out exactly where they are and what is near them. But one can either fumble boorishly or choose to do it discerningly. Yes, of course. Everyone here today, thank you for joining. This was him feeling out the walls. It was tight in here, but at least he now knew where he was. A deep hole. So deep, he couldn't see a single speck of light above him. But what he found was the first rung of a ladder leading upwards. He pulled himself up off the ground and began to climb. We all understand the issues facing our guild. While its form has shifted, its core has remained unchanged since the earliest days of our work. The room nodded in agreement. Grant felt his hands and feet pull him up another step. He could now perceive the stingiest of apertures above, letting down a thin ray of hope. Hand over hand, he persevered, and foot over foot, he climbed. Not enough history, but too many historians. It's the received wisdom of many a meeting such as this. Ascending past this is what will invigorate the historians once again. You have entrusted this most consequential of tasks to me. While it is not my job to be 100% correct 100% of the time, it is my role to be 100% dedicated to exploring our options, good and bad, then bringing you the fruits of my labors. Grant was ascending now. His world was getting brighter with every word that left his lips. Brighter for Grant, at least. For Rondo, this felt grim. Sat in the seat closest to Grant, Rondo had engaged his entire mental energy on two things, holding his tongue and holding his eyes so that they might not roll all the way to the back of his head. Grant's patter may be an infrequent charm for everyone else here, but to Rondo, working with Grant every day meant he knew how the trick worked and also how poorly things can work out for him after the magician's prestige wears off. Grant began listing projects, schemes, and avenues of investigation his team had appraised and developed over the year. After each item, Rondo struggled to limit his groans to the inside of his head. One project they'd scrapped two years ago. Another had no one working on it for months, but they just hadn't cancelled it yet. Another was a terrible idea Grant really liked, but the team had mooted in a recent meeting, but, surprise, surprise, here it was again. Not that anyone else in the room would know this. Rondo looked around and saw nods of approval and smatterings of thoughtful chin-scratching from this audience of high-ranking historians. Rondo's mind wandered for a moment while he considered the merits of calling Grant out on his misinformation when Grant started talking about one of Rondo's projects. Our excellent Rondo, began Grant, gesturing gallantly towards Rondo, is working with the Society Royal on a new device. 
One where we might store records as sound rather than just bog-standard ink on paper. The large Nocturnian at the head of the table raised their hand and Grant, halfway through another sentence, immediately stopped speaking. What on Nocturne would we use that for? Upon hearing this, Rondo pleaded inside his head for Grant to defer to him. He knew there was zero possibility that Grant would get this right without him. And Rondo wasn't wrong. Grant didn't get it right. Well, uh, um... Grant suddenly felt the ladder of hope that he'd been climbing crack underneath him. His feet cut loose from the wall and he was hanging by the tips of his fingers. But the light was so close. He had to try. He had to persevere. Ahem. Well, we always talk about getting people to engage with history. We just thought the people could listen to it instead of reading it. The room went deathly quiet, but the inside of Rondo's head was delirious. His mind filled with a waterfall of reasons why this was the dumbest idea. The collaboration was about archiving key historical documents for people that couldn't see, not delivering history to all the people. The devices were going to be too expensive to mass-produce and too fragile. Interrupting Rondo's thoughts, the large Nocturnian spoke again. My, my, Grant, now that's an idea. We've struggled to generate interest in new histories for years. This could be just what we need. How soon until it's ready? Grant spoke before Rondo could even process the question. A few months away, there's a trip returning with new materials for the project this week. Our collaborators will test them, then another expedition will leave to collect more of the best materials. Once we have enough, the project can be completed. See that it is only a few months, Grant. Will you or Rondo be overseeing that final trip? Grant took a moment to think. It couldn't be him going. He doesn't know anything about it. So it must be... Rondo. Rondo will ensure the success of the trip. Excellent, excellent, and well done, Grant. Your father would be proud. And with that, Grant pulled himself up and out of the hole, and the full light of the moons quickened his spirit. He had escaped. He had won. And he was a god. For Rondo, the rest of the meeting was a blur. He was focused so intensely on why he was now joining a trip that he originally had zero intention of joining that the remainder of his senses dimmed so that he resided completely inside his own head. Then, two synapses connected and cracked a Mylinian whip across his consciousness. That trip, it leaves in a few days. An ink pot of adrenaline flushed through his mind, which creaked from the strain of desperate mental math spent processing logistics and priorities, all requiring quantification and execution. His senses had now dipped so far into a low-energy autopilot, he only began to regain them 
once everyone had left and he was left outside with Grant, who then looked at him with a concerned expression. Rondo? Rondo? Are you feeling okay? Can you make that trip? Asked Grant, unconsciously more concerned for his own well-being than Rondo's. Rondo swayed slightly as the balance between his ears re-engaged and squinted at the harsh lights refilling his perception. Rondo had a grimoire full of choice words for Grant, but fortune intervened so that he only uttered the most diplomatic phrase available to him. You have no idea. Sitting on the lip of the moonlight pool, Nevin gently lowered some mint tea into a pot of boiled water. As the tea touched the water, they produced little emerald clouds that danced and swirled around the pot. Once he was happy with the arrangement, Nevin looked up and noticed Yuki watching too. They both waited for the tea to steep while a gentle, minty steam rose through the cold air of the minster, thickening and thinning as they passed through shafts of light from the octagonal tower above. Nevin was glad for Yuki's unexpected presence here tonight, and that she wanted to talk with him. But what he wanted to say pulsed between the defensive and the vulnerable, and between certainty and indecision. Minutes passed as they sat together, letting the tea and their thoughts brew. When the tea settled on a final leafy green hue, Nevin poured it into two white mugs, handing one to Yuki and then keeping one for himself. After staring into his own mug for many a minute, Nevin hesitantly 
started speaking. I, I don't know quite where to start with all this. Yuki, cautious not to spoil his delicate progress, thought for a moment, then asked, How come today was the day you stopped singing? Nevin started thinking, and immediately those thoughts entangled with the gossamer clarity he had just felt. I don't know. Yuki smiled with an urging sympathy, then waited patiently for him to continue. This nurturing quiet said one thing Cecilianly clear to Nevin, that not knowing was okay, and if not knowing is okay, perhaps not knowing over the course of many words would be okay too. So he began, not at the beginning or at the end, but where he found himself in his thoughts at that very moment. He told Yuki about his priestly friends from earlier in the day, well-meaning but too entrenched in similar problems to really engage with him. He told of the cardinals and their expectation of duty in hard times. And he told of the lonely nights of full ceremony seen by almost no one but him for years, and how he felt he should really stop being a priest if it makes him feel like this. It all came out so quickly that he needed a rest just to refill his mind once again. Yuki gave him that time before venturing another question. What's stopping you from doing something else? Nevin thought on the question, but thinking didn't seem to help. I don't know. Well, actually... He looked up the octagonal tower and pointed towards the glasswork above. It's her, Saint Cecilia. She's given me strength many times. I feel like I owe her and... Nevin paused tentatively. He knew what he had to say could be perceived as a little hokey, but it was the truth. I feel like she really needs this song. Because of the teachings? Yes, somewhat, but I really feel it. Deep in my bones. She and the other moons really yearn for this song. Yuki's face became momentarily baffled, but she regained her composure quickly. Warmly, she told him, I don't understand it, but perhaps that connection is the privilege of one who communes with the moons every day. Nevin looked back down at his mug again. But if the hymnal is truly important to you, then you should follow that urge. But I've been quite sad staying here all this time. It feels so lonely. Should I really stay if it's important to me, but makes me unhappy? Maybe, but I would try to find a way to follow that desire without feeling so bad about it. This wasn't really a solution at all to Nevin. Simplistically, he was hoping to have something new and easy to do differently, but he was mightily relieved to have voiced his true worries to someone at all. To Nevin, the problem had grown so much for so long, it felt like it would always be this way. But talking had made it smaller, and gave him the hope that it could shrink even more. 
he had also realized that he had been doing all the talking for the last half an hour. So, with a renewed vigor, he reflexively dissipated this self-consciousness by asking, So, what brought you into the church this evening? I thought you said you were busy when you were out by the song lamps. Now, Yuki was on the spot. She had lied earlier. She even lied to herself a little, although that, unhelpfully, doesn't also come with a Celestine blush of the cheeks. She wasn't about to divulge her reasons for being here before getting what she came here for. Well, tell you what, if you sing the hymnal for me, I'll tell you why I came back. Deal? Nevin was at once bristled and intrigued by the suggestion. It wasn't even the right time for a hymnal anymore. However, his initial reaction gave way to a rather more sensible thought. That actually, he would quite like to sing the hymnal anyway. Nevin smiled and said confidently, Deal. Nevin ushered Yuki to the pews closest to them, then returned to the center of the moonlight pool to tidy away the mugs. He walked up to the altar, then began the ceremony. Welcome, one and all, with a special emphasis on the one tonight. Nevin could hear a muffled titter coming from Yuki's direction and was enlivened by the response. We are here to entertain and delight our good friend, St. Cecilia the Moon. That's not how it goes, snorted Yuki gleefully. Nevin continued, saying, We ask that you give what you can so we can get St. Cecilia a new coat of paint. Take solace in the hymnal and may your laughter echo beyond the moons. Nevin walked towards the moonlight pool again and Yuki gazed as she saw his face and body relax. Surrounded by light reflecting within and around the moonlight pool, Nevin breathed in, smelling the faint after-aroma of mint tea, closed his eyes, and then began the hymnal. Yuki sat on the wooden pews and listened, but more importantly, she watched. Her eyes fixated on motes of glistening dust that flickered into being just as Nevin started singing. These motes shined brighter and more plentifully as the hymnal crescendoed and pulsed softly as the song quietened across its ancient phrases. Yuki pulled out her notebook and pencil, quickly scrawling bullet points of her observations. Remarkably clear glistening. Rare? Celeste-colored presentation that was odd for the melody. No clouding bodies, just massless sparkles. She then focused on their movement. She reminded herself that the lights that spawn from songs move all the time, often with some sort of perceived logic. When they take animal forms, they move around a room much like the real thing. But that didn't make any sense here. Lights can also be influenced by the environment, 
like when a fireplace engorges lights with additional radiance, or when a light cloud's reflections on water take on lives of their own. Yuki moved her focus from the lights, trying to perceive any factors that could be influencing them. The candelabras were quietly glowing, but they didn't seem to influence the moats much, if at all. She pondered whether the moon's light pool might affect the lights when she felt a draft rolling over her ankles. It flowed from behind her, from the exit of the minster to the altar at the front, but it didn't appear to affect the lights at all. Instead, they seemed to resist its effects and flowed broadly up to the ceiling or down to the floor. Yuki pursed her lips as she considered this oddity. As she did, a thought passed her mind and she was compelled to test it immediately. So, Yuki started humming a small counterpoint along with the hymnal. As she hummed, she focused her eyes on perceiving the lights as best she could. The lights, that diamond dust, flowed faster now she was singing. It became even more clear that these lights were moving upwards, spreading across the vaulted ceilings and escaping out of the top of the minster. But also, they escaped downwards to cover the floors and filtered into the cracks in between the giant flagstones on the floor of the minster. Then, she stopped humming and saw the lights slow to their previous speed. Her eyes widened as her hypothesis was confirmed. Her hands wrote hurriedly in her journal, as if the observation would flee from her any second. Unique song-dependent movement. Too many variables. Reason unknown. More testing required. Yuki had expected something of interest when she came here, but observing a unique presentation of the phenomena she'd investigated most of her life was more than she could have hoped for. Ideas for new tests and variables to control streamed across the lines of her journal as her hands deftly endeavored to keep up with her thoughts. Yuki only stopped when she heard Nevin voice the last note of the hymnal. She hastily closed her notebook and placed it back into her coat, then turned to look at Nevin as the sparkles filling the minster vanished in a single wave that seemed to emanate from Nevin. Each sparkle popped like a bubble, leaving a delicate Celestine afterimage before disappearing completely. Yuki strained to commit these details to memory so that she could record them later. With Nevin's eyes still closed, a large grin spread across his face before he took a deep breath and opened his eyes to see Yuki fidgeting a little with her coat. How was that? Asked Nevin doubtfully. No one has been here for a while, so you need to tell me if I still sing it well. Singularly spectacular, replied Yuki with a slightly scheming grin. You know, I think I know a few more people who'd love to come and listen. So pleased was Nevin to hear this, he forgot all about why he even sang at all that evening. Only that he was thankful he did.
A nocturnian rarely needs a thing before they know it exists. That it could exist is certainly interesting, but they were plenty happy with their hands before being given a fork and suitably humbled by trees before knowing they could photosynthesize. Instead, it takes discomfort to make a nocturnian desire a new thing and then push themselves to discover it. It is the chill wind that urges one to close the door, the silence that demands a new instrument to play, or the twinge of worry that urges one to find a new path. If you happen to meet a nocturnian who is happy doing the same thing each day, know that learning something new could be the worst mistake they ever make. Not that they can avoid it, really. Once a thing enters the world, it can be difficult to conceive of life without it, unless one can convince themselves that the new knowledge creates a new discomfort all of its own. Then they can either get rid of it or make something new to manage the discomfort again. It is those who choose the latter that make up the majority of people at Nocturne's oldest facility of research and learning, the Society Royal. The Society is home to those who study the systems of the world around them and respond to the problems of the people as and when they perceive them. Full of people with discomforts of various potentials and origins, their curiosity for curiosities drives discovery, which results in ideas and inventions that are either useful now or that they insist may be useful later. No one really owns the society either. It began as a small group of farmers who wanted to grow more mushrooms more easily to feed more people more consistently. These farmers shifted their efforts from cultivation to contemplation and, over time, discovered that the more heavily networked a mushroom crop is, the more access to resources and nutrients they will have. After implementing this discovery by planting a fungal highway between all the farms on the perimeter of the Midnight City to great success, the Farmers Guild bequeathed these researchers with a giant wooden warehouse and a grain silo for them to use as they saw fit. These researchers started by building a small office for themselves within the warehouse to enable their studies. However, with each success they unearthed, the more people came to them inquiring about new agricultural methods. So, they went and got more agricultural researchers and grew their offices. But then came those that knew of their reputation for research, but wished to study other topics alongside them. The agriculturalists discussed the matter and agreed that if these new researchers build their own offices, then they can join them in the warehouse to further the pursuit of knowledge on Nocturne. The idea that anyone can join the society as long as they build their own office space became a fundamental principle of the society. As the years progressed from then into now, hundreds of researchers moved into the warehouse, which resulted in a mishmash of houses, shacks, and architectural marvels that grew into a miniature research village inside the warehouse. 
By virtue of their founding the society, the agriculturalists to the southern wing of the warehouse secluded themselves within a mammoth greenhouse made from crystal-clear glass that was held in place by an ornate silver frame etched with flowers. Within the greenhouse, a special gutter structure in the roof collected condensation from all the plants and people and then drained the water down through intricate pipework to irrigate a vast central alley of plowed ridges for all their test crops. These crops were flanked by wooden desks propped up by bundles of hay with busy researchers sitting at each one. The engineers to the eastern wing of the warehouse were one of the early groups to work alongside the agriculturalists at the society. They had constructed a collection of giant copper drums for their members to work in, which had collected small splatters of blue-green oxidization over the years. These drums reflected the warm light of the plentiful custom song lamps that were riveted to the walls inside and outside of each office drum. Overlarge workbenches were covered in tools and journals that were neatly organized into purpose-built slots and cubbies. Three quills were available at every desk, and each quill was stained lightly with black, blue, or red ink used for their schematics. The space between the office drums contained ample signage to help one find the exact researcher one needed and a particularly large area was left free of buildings to act as a town square for the engineers to show off their ideas. The newer and smaller research groups were much more ramshackle. For instance, the society's mycology group hadn't even built their own offices. Instead, they had inherited a collection of humble log cabins left behind by a failed group of ecologists in the center of the warehouse. It wasn't their first choice. The mycologists had tried to reach an agreement with the ornithologists who built their offices in the silo next to the warehouse. But the sound from all the birds proved too distracting and they often came back from their lunch to find their mushroom experiments were now heavily pecked. They also tried to join the agriculturalists' greenhouse only to be told that there wasn't any space unless they wanted to add an annex to the greenhouse just for them. So they found the abandoned cabins, pushed everything the ecologists had left behind to the corner of their rooms, just in case they ever came back for it, then covered these piles with years and years of their own research like a sort of inspirational grime. Brendan, one of the few mycology researchers at the society, wasn't delighted by this location, but he was even less delighted by the prospect of building a new office. He was told by some ecologists who had moved into other areas of the society that his office used to be home to an old sliding grove researcher that one day just got bored, left, and never returned. Brendan was sitting at his desk after arriving late that morning. Sheets of paper, journals in various states of open and closed, and a disorganized collection of quills and ink were piled, scattered, and strewn across the office in a manner that made complete sense to Brendan and was complete nonsense to anyone else. 
A multitude of song lamp styles sat around the room in various states of bright to dim. Brendan would be the first to admit that he was a messy and disorganized worker, but he did not see how it really got in the way of his work or the work of anyone else. He had, in the most past of tenses, shared his office with other researchers, but his disordered office style had earned him a reputation and also a quiet office to himself. Brendan's thoughts centered on why the Bergnum and Hoplite mushrooms were so often found together, despite needing very different environments to grow. Leaning back in his chair, with fingers on his lips, he noticed people walking past his office door. One went past and he looked up, thinking little of it but enough to disrupt his previous line of inquiry. As more individuals and a few small groups walked by, his attention struggled to return to where it had started. Eventually, the space outside his office returned to its usual calm. He was just about to write down a few avenues for exploring the cohabitation of those two mushrooms when he heard a knock on his doorframe. Looking up again, he immediately recognized the long-ago memorized face of Chris Raga, head of natural research at the Society. Are you coming? She inquired brightly. Ah, delightful to see you, Chris. Uh, coming to what exactly? Brendan saw Chris's face change from smiling to quizzical disappointment. They're organizing teams for fieldwork. I told you about it months ago. Put a leaflet on your desk and everything. Brendan's mind went completely blank. He did not remember that chat or the leaflet, although he didn't need any more information to know he needed to be there. Brendan had wanted to go on a trip to the wilds for over a year now, but whenever he felt ready to go, no one else was ready to go with him. He wouldn't mind doing another solo trip again, but he had explored all he wanted to in the places just outside Midnight City. All his ideas needed him to travel into the far more dangerous and unknown Far Wilds. One moment, Chris. Chris obliged, seemingly used to this order of events. Brendan collected a notepad and pencil before hurriedly putting on his walking slippers and stepping out of the office. Thank you, Chris, and sorry for the trouble. No trouble at all, though you do have to watch out for yourself from time to time. Speaking of which, how did your discussions go with the ornithologists last week? Horrible. Asked if they could keep the bird chirping down to a minimum after those noise complaints from the cartographers. Told me I'd have to put the corks on the beaks myself. Ah, less said the better then. The pair started walking and passed a row of wooden offices of similar design to Brendan's. They then passed a group of high-ceilinged bug-proof tents belonging to the insect researchers. The tents had been sewn together over time to create a labyrinth of weather-resistant corridors, offices, and meeting rooms. Having never been inside, Brendan wondered what it was like. Ever been in there, Chris? Tried to avoid it. Went to check in on old Nadia Beetle Breeches a few months back. The lady with the beetle shell pants. 
exactly. Got lost and had to eat the lampflies out of their lamps to survive. Never looked at me the same way again after that. They continued on to a place called The Clearing, and the chattering of voices began to swell. They crossed a perimeter of medium-sized, dark oak trees that were planted by the foresters in the early days of the society to be used as an open-air meeting space under the roof of the warehouse. As they entered the clearing and the flame-colored light of a large pulsing song lamp touched their skin, Brendan realized he was quite late and saw that lots of groups had formed already. He quickly thanked Chris then got to work searching for a travel team with the time and the people he had left. The first group he talked to was a trio of geologists heading out to some plateaus near the west of Midnight City. Ah, not much fungi out there, unless you're into lichen. Ah, heavens no, wouldn't dream of it. Next was a group of mammal researchers. They were still deciding where to go, but weren't experienced enough to head into the far wilds just yet as Brendan needed. He was about to wish them a safe trip, then be on his way, when they asked if he'd seen any skip badges on his previous outings. He remembered chancing upon a set of hopping badges in the southern forests a few years back. So he stayed for half an hour, explaining the route, pointing out good spots to camp at along the way, and then drawing markers where he thought he'd sighted those cheeky hopping fur devils. Those researchers thanked him and wished him luck finding a group to travel with before Brendan left. He looked around the clearing for people to talk to, but saw that most of the people had already left now. He then noticed that Chris had wrangled the stray stragglers to the A-framed picnic tables in the very middle of the clearing and decided he was probably a straggler as well. He was still hopeful of forging a travel team until everyone had sat down at the table. The stragglers around him were, again, much younger than him. None of them had the experience or the need to venture into the far wilds like Brendan, who had exhausted all the options close to the city years ago. The younger researchers started planning a trip to the east of the Midnight City and Brendan left them to it. He stood, walked over to Chris, then asked, I don't suppose you need to do a field trip anytime soon? Chris looked at Brandon sympathetically. Afraid not, old chum. I've got my hands full here. Ah, terrible shame. I do miss our trips, Chris. Remember the purple mushroom incident? Purple? Ah, yes. We were ever so young then. I thought you had turned into a ghost. Covered you in a blanket so you wouldn't fly away. They both laughed heartily at the memory, then reminisced about old trips well taken as they walked the route back to Brendan's office. When they arrived, Brendan sighed and looked up to the ceiling of the warehouse. He keenly felt just how much time he'd spent indoors at the Society of Late instead of out there in Natia. Chris saw her old friend growing weary, she placed a hand on his shoulder and, with a warm expression, said, As you well know, I stopped studying moonflowers when I started managing you all. She pulled a small paper bag out of her coat pocket, placing it on Brendan's desk. Didn't stop growing them, though. My, my. For me? Have a brew, Brendan. 
take the moonflower seeds out, crush them, then steep in boiling water for five minutes. No more, no less. That's very kind of you, Chris. After this, Chris said she needed to leave. Something to do with a pair of grass snakes that couldn't unstraighten themselves. The two shared a goodbye embrace before Chris left, and Brendan sat down heavily in his desk chair. His ears pricked at the sound of bells. They were chimes from the chronologists, indicating midday and lunch. Brendan pulled a wax bag full of fruits from his rucksack, picked up a handful of sour pickleberries, then tipped them into his mouth. Brendan tried to forget his frustrations a little. They obediently stood to the sidelines of his mind, but he couldn't help but look over at them regardless of how hard he tried to ignore them. He stopped chewing, moved the berries aside, and pulled a paper and quill towards him. A solo trip to the far wilds seemed like the only option if he was going to discover anything new this year. The thought of that trip filled him with unease, so he pulled the pickleberries back towards him. I'll stop planning it tomorrow, he said to himself, before taking another mouthful of berries and anticipating how satisfying a cup of warm, earthy moonflower brew would be.